0: I think you have to be very self motivated in terms of the quality of the decision making because I don't want to denigrate humanitarian workers, but we can be a little bit like hooligans. You see, it's people who go for not really like for a weekend to to Berlin or to London to another city, then actually nobody's watching. Although now has you changed a lot to social media and investigative journalism, but the way it used to be. Nobody's, nobody's really to follow you with the decisions, with the bad consequences of the decision, decisions you took 5,000 miles away. You see? So you have all the incentives to rush to bad decisions. So I, th- I think you have to compensate for that very consciously because it's very dangerous.
1: Joseph is a career humanitarian and he's spent uh, well over 20 years with UNHCR working on refugees and forced displacement. But alongside that, there's something a bit more unusual that tweaked for me personally when we met a few years back in Central Asia and he started speaking Tajik to a local community despite never having worked in the region. It turned out that alongside a half dozen European languages, he's also invested in Persian and Arabic, and that's kind of the key to this one. What does it take to listen respectfully and understand in context where you're necessarily an outsider? What does good judgment and good decision making look like in contexts that are often cartoonishly fast paced? So in, in sum, this one is is really about professional ethics and professional honesty, as he puts it, in tough environments where no one's really going to do that for you, where the, the onus is on you to be cautious and sober and, and responsible in approaching the job. This is one step forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy <music> I, do, I, I usually start this in a very straightforward place. Uh, if you meet someone socially, uh, not an expat
0: in Lebanon, not a stakeholder, how do you describe what you do for a living? It's a bit of a tough call because it's, it's full of filters and it's full of preconceived ideas. Also because today, for instance, everything is NGOs. People don't know what the UN is doing anymore, which is maybe is not a bad thing. But then the paradigm of, of humanitarianism is volunteer activities, which is not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to offer a mandated agency because that reflects also a legal framework and a mandated framework. That was quite important for me. So, listen, I, normally I try two things. I try to explain the situation that people are and then what we do practically. And then if I want to, um, you know, maybe provoke a little bit of, uh, of thinking, then I normally use the example of public services because we're not charity. So I normally use the example in particular... Imagine sort of a situation in your city where somebody is run over by a truck and nobody actually comes and there's no ambulance. Wouldn't that be scandalous? So it's, it's the same. It's just working in other countries. I normally try to use the example of, uh, of public service rather than charity or goodwill or these kind of things. Also because I think reflects better the human reality of humanitarian workers, that people like um, everybody else who do it because they have other motivations on the side, like curiosity or... You know, they like to laugh every three, four years. Probably counts as a motivation as much as anything else.
1: So when you mentioned the refugee word, the R word, people have preconceived ideas or they react in a certain way?
0: Yes, I don't think it's necessarily because of humanitarian work being necessarily, particularly just because of distance, it's because the situations we work with um, are situations that even now, when uh, we're five years of so called refugee crisis in Europe, is is not really even the average on how refugee crises happen elsewhere. So it's liable to be misunderstood. I think what has happened in the last five years is that the, so the, the debate has been much more politicized. And you automatically, depending on political ideology, find yourself in one side of the debate or the other without necessarily knowing the data, without necessarily knowing the so that has made debate like more difficult which makes explain it um a bit more complicated so i think simplicity is probably the best um the best approach um and then also i think you have to really spend time explaining to people you care for i think so every time i have an opportunity to do chats or conversations or, or, or speeches in barcelona i do it because i do like it but that's because people ask otherwise i don't volunteer it but if it's family or friends, then you want to invest really every time you go bad because I mean, you want to be understood and you don't want to have this distance, uh, or you want to have it reduced as much as you can while you still live abroad. I mean, that's I mean, you have to focus on what counts, which is mostly family and friends.
1: It's interesting because it's been over 20 years for you working around the world, but you seem to speak. With still quite a strong sense of home or a, a strong sense of place, has that been a, a priority for you? Maintaining that over the years?
0: Well, I mean, I think we're never migrants, and you have to. And um, if you care about that, which is my case, uh, because I still have friends in Barcelona, most of my family lives there, then you just have to invest in telephone calls and then you know going back once in a while. Um, And then now every five, six years I take leave without pay, which is uh, I'm doing now. Then I spend two or three months or four months of them studying and then the other part of it just spending time with um, people I care about in in my city. So you have to invest. I mean, I think um, otherwise it goes away. It's like everything in life, I think.
1: (laughs) Mm, Indeed. If we roll back to the start of that, your bio is interesting. And so far as you... Finish your studies, and then you go and intern at UNHCR, and then almost immediately afterwards start working at UNHCR, and, and, and have worked there ever since. So it seems like you had a pretty clear idea that was what you wanted to do. Where did that come from? Where did the where was the seed planted for you?
0: There, there was probably a process of two three years, which wasn't quite easy. Um, And then a few moments, I think processes happen, probably very deep in the mind that you don't really realize. And at some point, they just start knocking, hey, I'm here. And then you realize that you have a process there inside, but you realize quite all of a sudden, which can be actually quite tough. Two things I can mention is that, uh, I mean, I have a degree in philosophy. So I spent um, four years actually quite, I was working quite hard on that. I mean, uh, as uh, studying Latin, German, and Greek in the mornings, and then philosophy in the afternoons. It was fully dedicated. And then at some point, during the last part of my studies, I became quite interested in uh, mathematical logic. So I studied three years of mathematical logic. Um, And then uh, during the third year, it was model theory. And then it used to be two people and the teacher. And it's massively interesting. But then just thinking, I mean, who am I going actually to discuss about model uh, model theory in my life? What kind of social circle is that? Giving to what kind of education from a human perspective is it giving to you? So I, I started to feel like really quite isolated. I was, you know, my life was entirely directed by intellectual endeavors. And that was passionate, but a bit isolating. And I became a bit afraid of being isolated. I think that was one thing. So then my last year, I took I international relations. I went to France with, a, at the time, what was the Erasmus scholarship. And I think that was the moment where I decided. And I think what attracted me more was the level of uncertainty that you're working with, that you have to take decisions quite quick with very limited information and quite the potential to make mistakes. Um, And I think that was like two things. One of them is that I think what I found fascinating is is how an ability to take good decisions can actually have a very good impact with people. That I found extremely attractive, how good judgment can actually impact in well-being like very immediately. And then the second one is a potential for learning because you're really, in particular if you're on the front line, you're really exposed to your mistakes. So I don't think that there's a better education than that one.
1: Those two things are sort of intention now. Studying philosophy, very systematic, right up to learning languages to read texts with the original intent. Um, and then what you just said about taking decisions quickly, immediate impact, they seem in a way like opposites, or at least it's an interesting jump from one to the other, no?
0: It, it is, but then, um, yeah, maybe it needs, it needs to complement a little bit. And I was thinking now that book about quick thinking and slow thinking. But it became quite famous in terms of training, decision-making. Uh, and I think it's a bit uh, it's a bit both. Uh, you have the same on the humanitarian. And probably situations I enjoy mostly situations in which, like it was in the Bekai in the last four years, in which you have to invest in every day a little bit and doing a lot of analysis. And then the situations in which you have to react pretty quickly. So I think it's quite a good um, combination. I think it trains quite well both aspects of personality and both aspects of how, how the brain works.
1: The other thing that jumped out at me looking at the chronology is the fact that you've done relatively long stints in a number of countries, so five years in in Colombia, four or five years in Lebanon, headquarters in Geneva, and then a a few shorter things sprinkled in there. Is that by design? Do you prefer to have a a longer process of, of absorbing, making those successive decisions in place in order to to understand it a bit better?
0: No, by all means. I think one doesn't have a lot of control over that, but then when you do, then when you feel that you're doing a good work in a country, I think it makes sense to continue. Um, And then the context in which we work, the extremely complicated context is actually very complicated to learn. It takes a lot of goodwill. Um, It takes a lot of willpower, actually, not goodwill with power. So... I don't really think that in a complicated context, you can really start to make any good decisions after six months. So I think the honest approach of it is, is you know, during the first month you concentrate on the decisions that are relatively easy to make and then in parallel you learn. And then you start addressing um, the complicated things, but out of intellectual honesty, only when you are at a sufficient level of knowledge and analysis mm-hmm. and consensus so that you can actually take these decisions um, in a more rational way. because I think. We have a lot of power in this profession, in particular in. Uh, so I think one one has to have this uh, because the outside world doesn't provide these checks and balances the way it provides in sort of organized democracies. We're talking about conflict situations. Very so. Sometimes you have much more responsibility than it seems. I I think you have to be very self motivated in terms of the quality of decision making. It's extremely important because. I don't want to with humanitarian workers, but we can be a little bit like hooligans. You see, it's people who go for, not really, like for a weekend to, I don't, I'm not a fan of football, but you go to Berlin or to London, to another city, then actually nobody's watching, although now has, you change a lot to social media and investigative journalism, but the way it used to be, nobody's, nobody's really to follow you with the decisions, with the bad consequences of the decision, decisions you took 5,000 miles away you see? So you have all the incentives to rush to bad decisions. So I I think you have to compensate for that very consciously because it's very dangerous.
1: What does that look like or how does that play out? Are you thinking about specific situations that
0: you have seen over the years? I can think of a few examples. I mean, uh, I've worked most of the time in conflict situations, but most of my time in displacement caused by conflict Mm -hmm. situations. Probably the most important kind of understanding you need when it comes to protection is the link between the origins of a conflict and the protection consequences. I think that's extremely important because that teaches you the things you can do protection-wise and the things you really cannot do protection-wise. And I think one quite painful experience in terms of knowledge uh, and the rapidity and the, pres- the the position with which you can gain knowledge was Central African Republic. I was in CAR in the first six months of 2014. So I think it was in January, on December 13, that they declared the l 3 emergency. And then two things happened or three things happen. One of them is a conflict that's extremely complex, very complicated and very vicious. The second is that there was a lot of expats come to the country very quickly. And the third is that at the time, There's a lot of attention from Geneva and New York to offer results, including results in understanding the conflict. And then the way humanitarian leaders were rushed into conclusions, it it was just massive. I don't think there was bad will. It was this combination of a very complicated situation that were not easy, Uh, and then the pressure from headquarters because it was very visible. Uh, because also, um, in particular, the fact that you had so many IDPs in the airport, it made it very visible. So people rush immediately to um, call it a religious conflict between religious communities, which is probably that's really the conclusion I would um, take now. Um, and then, when you think you understand the conflict, or you push by pressure to portray yourself as understanding the conflict, you're going to be a bit more optimistic. Um, So we had to evacuate at the time uh, around 1,500 persons entirely surrounded by militias in Bangui. Um, Another time, we faced some uh, opposition from people rather working on conflict transformation and peace building, basically saying that, um, you know, you cannot evacuate. Same thing happened in other places. You cannot evacuate these people because first you have to try to reduce conflict between, uh, you know, those people and the surrounding host community. But then there was very little understanding of two things. Those people were already displaced, so there was no pre existing relationship with host community. And the second is that it absolutely could not be fixed because the level of manipulation and the level of fear, the level of anger was actually so high that there was absolutely no way going back. So there was really no time for more analysis on, on that. And I think the resources in terms of uh, peace building, mediation, conflict transformation were not really used at the time. And I think part of it was explained because there was this very high pressure to uh, provide explanations, where explanations could only be provided if you studied at least a little bit the origins of conflict in Central African Republic. And then what's tragic is that it was actually almost impossible to take good decisions without that. But then, actually, to, to, to actually to do that, it took quite an, uh, an, 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 an uh, you know important investment in time and resources. So that mismatch, I think, the Central African Republic was actually quite tragic at the time.
1: Yeah, it's um, easy to pick on CAR in some ways, or rather to pick on international engagement in in CAR. Um, way back now on the second episode of this podcast, I had a long serving human rights researcher who was coming to see our from congo as as I uh, did in a smaller sense, and he said everyone kind of thought of it as as congo easy you know it was it was smaller it wouldn 't be as difficult uh, more solvable problems, and of course that wasn 't the case right that was hubris, it was over-optimism or or under-analysis, but it seems to have taken about three or four years for people to actually realize that and say, hold on, there's actually a quite complex and long-standing set of community dynamics here. This is not North, South, Christian, Muslim, uh, or whatever binary issue. Is there a difference to your mind between that kind of context, uh, exceptionally Marginalised contexts like CR, and somewhere like Colombia or, or Lebanon, which are wealthier, better connected, um, certainly more studied. Do you think that there's a better level of baseline understanding when people come to work in in these countries, or has it been a similar experience or similar
0: set of of habits? I think it's a challenge everywhere, I think. Lebanon is a bit of a, it's actually a very interesting example. I mean, COVID and the Beirut explosion have changed a lot of things, but Lebanon as a country and as a society, in particular in Beirut, it has a lot of mechanisms. It really has a way to make you believe that it is a very progressive country that is different. Also, because people are, in average, like probably more educated than the average in the Middle East, and then. Uh, the mastery of French or English is probably also high than the average in the Middle East. So Lebanon is a bit of a trap. I mean, it's very easy to fall, even socially, in the circles uh, in which people can be a bit more like you, particularly when you come from Western countries, when they speak the language, when there's a cultural life that's relatively sophisticated. So I think Lebanon is a bit of a trap because the country is extremely varied. But actually, Lebanon is very good. To make, I mean, I love this country to bits, but it's very good to make you think that the country is something that actually isn't. And then this kind of life that in Beirut can offer is very attractive. It's very stimulating. So I think in Lebanon, it's probably easier to, um, to fall into uh, into that trap. But it happens a lot of uh, countries in which, which is probably most of the countries in which you have uh, really sort of a, a dichotomy between the capital and the uh, and the countryside. I think what made it difficult also in CIA, it was a bit similar in Haiti, uh, is that there was actually a very visible humanitarian crisis in the capital. So that the place where donors are. This is the place where journalists are. So this is what uh, is going to make people have less resources to focus also on the countryside. So I think situations in which you do have a humanitarian crisis in the capital it makes it quite difficult to to sort of gain of understanding of the variety of the country, particularly on the countryside.
1: I immediately wrote down that phrase. The temptation to think the country is something that it's not. Can you expand on that? What do you What do you
0: mean by that? Well, but I think it's very human, and and again, um, I was reflecting again on C A R because of something I was writing about the country. And I think, I don't really think that we're easy or too lazy intellectually. I think that these weaknesses in understanding are actually quite human. As I was saying before, you are expected to understand. I was actually in CIA. I was running the, 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 the protection cluster at the country level. So I was myself under quite a lot of pressure to devise strategies for evacuation of uh, surrounded communities or communities under siege. So there was a lot, a lot of pressure to understand. And then I've even come to think that this even something that's linked to mental health because it's very hard not to understand unless you, you sort of think in your skin and you persuade yourself that it's actually fine not to understand. But I'm not really that kind of person. I want to believe that most of the humanity are not that kind of person. So if you actually know that you're not understanding and you actually have to take decisions are actually pretty hard. So you're going to have Quite a, even for self-preservation, you're going to have quite a strong incentive to believe you don't understand, also because you want to be seen as professional, as intelligent. So that's actually quite hard. Realizing that your level of understanding is quite limited can actually save your motivation, even have, can have consequences in terms of your mental health. So I think this is why it's so complicated.
1: I'm struck that you underlined the difference between capital cities and, and everywhere else uh, a few a few times, and you seem to have preferred the latter outside of working at uh, UNHCR headquarters in Geneva, of course. You don't seem to have spent much time in, in capital cities.
0: Is that deliberate? Was that by design? I think so. I mean, I don't want to romanticize raw areas of the field. Um, and I think there was, a, I'm not sure you saw that there was a bit of a debate on Facebook on Whether we should calling we should stop calling the field the field because it was sort of. of It was yes, I think it was um, but then you know if one should be forced to define the field, I mean the the field is where people that you're working for live. I mean it's as simple as that. It can be capital or can be somewhere else. It's as simple as that, and I don't conceive um probably what the intellectual what they enjoy more, is how you can combine analysis coming from uh, written sources with personal experience, and then from the human side, how you can use content. This is why I've tried once in a while to learn the local languages, how you can use as much as you can the daily contact with what we call persons of concern in UNHR to form your judgment and to take a proper decision, also because I find it quite stimulating So it's not really the issue of capital rural areas. It's it's more to work in areas where the people you work with actually live. It's relatively easy to have daily or weekly conversations with them. Because I don't think you can make a good judgment unless you're a genius. And I've known a few of them. It's really not me. But I don't think you can make good judgment calls uh, without that.
1: There's, again, some interesting tension there now with the the kind of analytical mode of reasoning which that initial background and in philosophy would would suggest or you know maybe it's a stereotype would would suggest where do you think that approach comes from is that from specific experiences um advice from particular people
0: that's a tough that's a tough question because i don't really spend a lot of time thinking of where things come from i think Once I felt there's a feel of direction, a sense of direction, I just um, just go for it. But since you're asking, I can mention two things. One of them is that I think naturally I'm an introvert. So I try to compensate for that. I spent really a lot of years studying, like, you know, with books and libraries. And of course, I love that. But at some point, the realization that 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 wasn't uh, sufficient, that was a bit inhuman, was quite brutal. And it was so brutal. That they really started to sort of compensate on the other side. So I think the realization the realization was quite the process as a hidden process was probably quite slow, but the realization was right, was was rather brutal. So I think it was quite clear that they needed something else. Um and then on the other side, I really enjoyed. I think just the feeling of talking and sharing, and I don't find it particularly hard uh, with people who are in like very bad conditions and then being able to do something is, uh, is actually extremely rewarding uh, because um, I'm not a great believer in attitude and positive attitude and these things, but it, it does count. When you work for long enough in a situation and then refugee population notion respects you, the credibility that you have can actually make you much more effective professionally that in case you didn't have that credibility. I think that's extremely important. And then the other thing is that you really want to know you're taking the right decisions, and the only way is to have some exposure and to have some level of trust with population who actually tell you you're doing the right thing or you're not doing the right thing. And that's actually the only way to know. And I think it's the only way to maintain some level of professional honesty on this.
1: And that's, that's the key phrase to me, um, professional honesty. I... It, resonates and I'm, I'm wondering from that point of view when you look at four years in Lebanon let's say or, or a similar amount of time in Colombia how do you assess the success of those roles how do you think about whether you did well achieved what you wanted to achieve given that the macro trends can can sometimes be very bad how do you think about the success or failure of your own role
0: you mean myself personally? Ah, that's really a tough one. Um, I think if there is one thing on which I have certainly improved, um, and I think that's probably the only one I can say with uh, a good level of certainty, I have improved, is the ability and the willingness to to analyze and and um, to actually stop and think the things I have to improve, the mistakes I've made. Um, for instance, be more systematic in terms of training needs, then be more systematic in terms of learning about the good lessons and the bad lessons, and actually acting on training needs, on things I need to improve, on things, for instance, that I have to recognize the strengths on which I can build, and things on which I have some weaknesses, and then I have to compensate for them. Um, So I've become much more systematic. So actually, a lot of the time that um, I, I, now I'm, I'm only for that, I'm sort of only for that pace in July, of course, a lot of my time on that was spent on, you know, spending time with my parents and they were friends, but quite a lot of the time has, I'm spending actually on analyzing and learning, which is something I didn't do 10, I think it was much more reckless uh, uh, 10 years ago. So I'm actually, to be honest, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I've become much better professional. I would like to think I have. But at least the one thing in which I'm more systematic is on this, on, on trying to be at least more responsible and trying to analyze and learn lessons for the next mission.
1: That is, I'm going to say, a uh, unusually analytical and, and sober way of, of thinking about it, uh, more of a gut level would you say that you have career highlights that you look back on and and draw motivation from or or conversely lowlights that were especially frustrating, unsuccessful? Do you think in those kind of holistic terms
0: at all? No, I think one has to think of those terms. So um, naturally, I would think of I spent four years in Southern Colombia. It was my first uh, term as a head of field office. I used to think of that as a, a bit of a highlight. And a, a lot of that was context. I mean, I had a fantastic team, I, in particular the local team, in particular the, the Colombians. I was doing a lot of work of protection in armed conflict, in particular with indigenous groups. And I maybe had the blessing to be in a region where the level of organization and the level of consciousness of these indigenous groups, some of them was actually very high. So I think if one just stopped and listened to them, it, it was relatively easy. It, it wasn't that complicated. The only thing that it took was to listen. Um, and I think at the time, we we're very systematic in listening to indigenous groups in the way we wanted to collaborate on protection in armed conflict, the complicated things such as community-based contingency planning. Um, I think that was pretty uh, pretty good. And pr- the toughest one was the Central African uh, Republic because um, it was a short time. It was only six months. There was not enough time to learn. The pressure was extremely high. The conflict was extremely untractable. Um, and I think the atmosphere in Bangui was actually quite complicated. I mean, during the midst of everything, it was quite punishing. And then I think the level of misunderstanding between the humanitarian community and, and the local community was how, what was happening. Was, uh, was actually quite low. Um, and the pressures also for, I mean, I was cluster coordinator, so if anybody who knows the humanitarian world knows how frustrating it is to try to protect without two vital things. One of them is resources, and the other is operational decision-making capacity. I didn't have any of them. So yeah, that was uh, that was tough. I probably could have done a better job in CER. Um I think it was a bit of an eye-opener then after this year, I went to Cameroon. I was head of sub-office. So there was a, we had a rather large budget. Um, and then as, as a head of office, I had all the sectors in my uh, in my hands. So at the time, children mostly dying of malnutrition, in, uh, in particular at the border, because people were still fleeing from CIA to Cameroon. Um, and there's a lot of malnutrition. Uh, but then it was quite an eye-opener. That rather than persuading people to do things or stop doing things to save life, we had an operation, we had a budget, we had medical expertise, and we have $4 million on malnutrition. So this is how we're saving the lives of children. So I found myself in a managerial position, and then I thought of that as being able to do protection. It was really the same outcome of the work. It was saving lives, but with much more tools. With advocacy, you can do advocacy. You need to invest money. Then you investing money. You need medical expertise. You have a doctor in your team. Um, and then the impact was actually much uh, much higher. So if you think protection as an outcome rather than as a profession, you really want to be in a managerial position. It, it wasn't that much the emergency that was frustrating. It was it was the nature of the protection profession in which you have a lot of responsibility and you have you don't really have a lot of tools. We have in particular as a coordinator, it's like a bit like um, I know it's a bit of a, of a time metaphor, but it's like it's a bit of a hard in cats. Um, I mean, probably it's very educational also because you really have to learn how to persuade people because you cannot really take a lot of decisions yourself. Um, but I think that was actually the hardest uh, part of it.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering, as I as I listen to you speak, uh, this It's been your vocation for a long time and for um, relatively long periods in individual countries. Uh, Clearly you have uh, quite broad intellectual interests. What keeps it fresh? What about this is is new and interesting for you, 20 years on, coming back from a leave of absence, going into a new country, going into a new role, knowing you'll stay there for, for three, four years?
0: Listening, I, th- I think I'm a very curious person. Um, and I think automatically I'm going to be stimulated by an intellectual challenge. And then if um, I manage, which is not always the case, I manage to use that for practical purposes, which has protect people, I think really there's no better motivation than that. I think the best motivation one can have in a, in any profession is is to be able to use your strengths have an immediate impact. And that's extremely motivating. I I think another one is that in most of the um, situations I've been, if you learn how to listen to your local staff, if you learn how to listen to refugees or to host communities, most people react quite well if you have the right attitude. One of the most rewarding experiences, and this is probably why Colombia was such a fantastic operation for me, I mean, it, both rewarding and quite sobering. Because when I left, I started to think, you know, maybe these local communities, in particular the indigenous communities, maybe they actually did it more to protect me than I did to protect them. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was a very tough but very nice, in particular in this particular indigenous community I was working with, it took us a year to trust each other. Um, so first time I met them, uh, I was, I mean, I was very motivated to do protection armed conflict. So I told them, Listen. We really want to work you to develop a strategy for self-protection during armed conflict, in particular places where the state is entirely absent. So they say, okay, we're going to think about that. Then, during eight months or almost a year, we never rediscussed discussed that. Uh, but then there's a lot of missions, a lot of processes in which observing how UNHR was working, uh, and then when they just came back to the office, that was in October, and then they said, listen. Remember that meeting in January, we told us, we, you know, you wanted to work with us to develop, to help us develop a strategy for protection. Let's do it. So you see, they spend this, because that's the way, they spend this eight months analyzing, seeing whether they could trust UNHCR, or whether they could trust the head of office, consulting internally, in consultation, were not visible. And then once the community as well had taken the decision, then they came and the said, let's do it. And then there was no coming back. I think the level of trust was very high because we invested in each other. Um, and then you can move even in complicated situations. You can move quite quick. Um, so I think the lesson is that if you invest in people, in particular your local te- your local um, team, and then and then host communities, and then uh, and then of course refugees, or IDPs. If you invest hard enough and long enough. Normally, there is a very positive answer, even in complicated uh, situations, and that's extremely rewarding.
1: Is that tough to, to work on that kind of time frame, that kind of slowly, slowly, fast way of, of dealing with people? At the time, you were fairly young and, and presumably relatively impatient to, to do things in a more linear, more direct way.
0: Could be. I, I don't think I was conscious. I mean, frankly, I mean that day when they come, they, they came. I mean, I was delighted, but it was a bit of a surprise. I mean, of course, I didn't know that they had this in town. Afterwards, of course, they told me that they consulted most everybody inside the community. Uh, but I, I, I didn't know. I wasn't necessarily assuming that because uh, I mean, I mean, a lot of indigenous people history have taught them to be discreet, and they were very discreet. Also, because they didn't want to disappoint, they were quite kind. They didn't want to disappoint me in case they said, "Mm, We cannot really work with this guy. You see, so they kept it quite discreet. I mean, I think we tried to be rather humble in terms of what we could do to protect them because there's quite a number of risks associated in working quite closely with an organized group on self protection. In particular, the state is not there and it's full of armed are not going to be interested, by definition, in anybody working on self-protection, anything sounding as community strengthening because armed groups want to use the community for their own purposes. And then to do that, they want the community divided. So it's something you can, I think, you, you actually know that you can only do it if the conditions, if the stars are well aligned. And then once they're, they're quite aligned, then you, you go with it. Even if you're sort of happy that it was enough what you're doing before, but then once you learn that you can do actually much more, I mean, just go for it, but you have to wait for that moment. Otherwise, it's very easy to make dangerous mistakes. I, 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 again, I don't want to dwell on romanticism of unregulated humanitarian work, but, but I, I think it was quite a creative time. And afterwards, I actually became the guy you have to call in the Division of Humanitarian Protection for policy advice. I became that guy. <laughs> I went to, to Geneva, but that guy didn't exist back, back at the time. So we're forced to be very creative.
1: How do you personally navigate that? You've explained the need for creativity and patience and curiosity, um, your need to you know, uh, soak in these situations, to ask questions in these situations, talk to people. So on paper, that might be a odd fit, right? Or a, or a difficult fit for a, a giant bureaucracy and 150 countries, not to put too fine a point on it, but clearly every 20 plus years it has been working for you. So how do you think about that um, kind of trade-off in terms of the ability to work in, in, in your own way and at your own pace versus the the legal mandate, the process, the, the policy backing, all of the things that go with that very large organization? Uh, what's the calculus there for you? How do you...
0: How do you view the pros and cons in, in, in that regard? Listen, that actually is a very good question. Um, I mean, UNHCR has many shortcomings as any organization. Uh, I think UNHCR, at least in my experience, is easily the most decentralized UN humanitarian organization. Um, I think there's a good consciousness that the field is very complicated. You have to make a lot of judgment calls. So in most situations, as long as you consult your superiors, as long as your decision-making is what it should be, um, there, there's a fair good tolerance of creativity in field offices. It's also because I think everybody understands the complexity. Of course, the trade-off is that you have to communicate very well. And I think that's a learning experience also. And then you have to invest really, really a lot in your team to make sure that you listen to them, to make sure that not only that you change opinion when they're proven to be right, but but you actually are seen as being able to change opinion when your team is actually proven to be right because that creates a lot of trust. I, I think you have to invest quite a lot on that. So I think if you have the right mix of, let's say, creativity and intellectual curiosity and analysis on the one side and then listening and flexibility on the other side, that's probably the best way to, um, to be a good leader.
1: Hmm. This is perhaps a bit more random or, or a shot in the dark, but you put a lot of emphasis on, on patience, on curiosity, on differences in people's experiences, differences between the capital and, and the countryside. I wonder, is that influenced at all by your uh, background? Is there some Catalan national consciousness in there somewhere, or at least perspective from, from Spain's communitarian challenges and, and and the politics of all that that
0: you obviously grew up around? I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Um, listen, could, could be, could be, I wasn't conscious of that till you asked. Uh, not, trying to, not trying to radicalize but, you as uh, a Catalan separatist, just curious. <laughs> But it could be. Um, I think there's certainly no connection whatsoever uh, in in terms of... uh, Because there's a lot of work with UNHCR protecting minorities. and There's really no connection whatsoever with being a Catalan and feeling sympathy for for oppressed minorities elsewhere. I probably would be quite... um, Even disgusted with myself if that connection existed. But there's probably some... um, there's probably some connection in terms of nuance, in terms of understanding identity, understanding how identity is, on the one side, extremely complex, and on the one side, uh, very, very liable to be manipulated. Um, and I think that the way that we've come, uh, I mean, of course, I have my own interpretation in terms of the Catalan situation, this, and my, my, my own ideas. But I but think it's quite sad, the level of miscommunication that we have reached and the level of manipulation. I think some people have portrayed the situation in Catalonia as people not talking to each other. That's pretty false. Um, people continue to talk to each other. But then when it comes to the political discourse, when organized political groups actually talking to each other, that, that is extremely disappointing. So I think that's quite a lesson in terms of complexity, in terms of patience in terms of how really, really have to listen to people to see where they come from, but then also in terms of prevention. And that was one of the lessons from um, Central African Republic. If you you don't invest in prevention of conflict before it becomes too complicated, there's really very little you can do afterwards. And I, I think, I hope I'm not stretching things too far, but I think that's a very important lesson now because there's a lot of discussion now on the nexus again people nexus in terms of humanitarian work and peace building and then development. Um, So I think that's a point in favor of humanitarian work remaining relatively autonomous. Once a conflict has started, and then if that conflict has some element of identity, and then if that conflict has an element of mistrust at the level of civilian population, and then once blood has started to flow, it is extremely, extremely difficult to turn it back. This is where you have to focus on humanitarian work, and you have to keep humanitarian work relatively autonomous. Um, and I think it helps to come to a, from a region where the level of complexity exists. And from a region in, in terms of not investing in dialogue early enough has led to a situation that's not violent, but fairly poisonous.
1: Is there anything that you would tell your much younger self starting out in this work, flying off to, to Mexico for that first um, first real posting? Were there major lessons or realizations that you think you would have benefited from coming into the sector?
0: Uh, that's a tough one. I think I was quite lucky because I had... Um... My first head of office in Mexico, his name is Luis Varese, he was a fantastic mentor. Um, and I got my uh, political training with him, not political in terms of politics, but in terms of analyzing politics. It's not that he said that, it probably <laughs> transformed his teachings in a maxim. I think your brain has to be quite dirty. Your, your analysis has to be open to any possibilities of human interaction the best ones, but also the, the the worst ones. But then your intentions have to become um, cleaner. So I think you have to probably combine both. I don't know, probably the lesson that I, I could, I'm not sure I have the legitimacy to these lessons to anybody, but I think that's one word that summarizes is humility. Because things are extremely difficult to understand. Conflicts are extremely difficult to understand. And you have to listen, you have to analyze quite a lot. And then the other one is that, I think you have to be also quite careful with trends. See, in particular, the, the humanitarian world was a world of, not certainties, but I think there was a clear sense of direction in the 90s Up to probably the start of the Syrian war and then after the start of the economic crisis in the West. We, we lived in a world of certainties, um, in terms of how coordination was being improved, uh, in terms of how even there was a model of interaction between military intervention, nation building, development, a humanitarian world that even refugee return. Because there was a model, I don't think there's a book in which this model has to be, has been systematized, but it existed. this the, the, the fact that that model could not be applicable to Syria is one of the reasons why Syria has been so anguishing in protection terms, in terms of inability to protect, in terms of inability to use diplomatic channels to protect. And I think that's, that's been extremely humbling uh, because now, if you look at a time back in, you know, I don't know, two thousand and four, two thousand and five, the way the interaction between humani- military intervention, humanitarian intervention, refugee return, the, the way it was systematized, and the way it was presented, and how it failed, so utterly in Syria, that's extremely sobering. If if you look, I remember when its protection conference in Oxford in two thousand and eight, and there's some some presentations about that, now it really looks at the prehistory. It looks very, very back in history. So I, I think that also calls for humility. and lots of trends in the humanitarian world right now. Some of them, they're good. Some of them, they're bad. And most of them are probably not there to stay. So I think probably you would do better in listening to your local colleagues, listening to local population, and analyzing local context rather than letting you be motivated or led by global trends.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I agree with that. More and more as as, as time goes on, and the the more you see things come and go in in the sector. One thing I usually close with, um, and on a related note, is there a a book or play or a poem or a podcast or whatever, is there something that you have found useful and influential in in gaining that broader perspective?
0: Well, that's a tough question too, but I I wouldn't really, I would really look for something outside of the humanitarian world because then you're gonna find something that's not expected. And this is what you can learn the most uh and because it's going to be probably less affected by um it's going to be less affected by common trends. It's not a time against trends, but trends can blind as, as well as they illuminate. So is I think it's good to look uh, outside. You probably know Victor Frankl, who wrote this book after the Holocaust. I think the book is in search of meaning. And then I was reading also um a lot of uh, Simone Veil this, uh, this summer. There's authors uh, that focus quite a lot on what people do with suffering and how suffering can be destructive, but also how can transform people for the better, for the worse, or for the different. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, lessons there to learn how the refugees respond to suffering and how they can find motivation. It's not that they can find motivation in suffering. Suffering is going to do something for them that's educational. And then they're going to find an opportunity um, on that. One of the examples in which I often focus is uh, is women. How often if something is, is is quite well documented. Um how refugeehood can create opportunities for women because they become all of a sudden they have more responsibilities because in particular for rural women or ru- women from a uh, you know, sort of less developed context, their skills can become more marketable so that they can all of a sudden gain more responsibility in the house and develop a sense of self-value in themselves. And then I'm not necessarily saying that they're going to become feminists, uh, but they're going to start thinking that they can have an impact on the community. And that can be quite transformational. And I've seen quite a number of examples, some of them also in the becca, Of how they can actually use these opportunities. Of course, you're not going to stop suffering, but you're going to learn something from it. And then you're going to use what you learn also to help your community. And then you're going to find a sense of purpose in helping your community. And then, if you're interested in community mobilization, you really want to find these persons. You're not really going to produce this change in them because it's very personal. But you can recognize persons who have this potential and then try to help them in developing leadership inside the community. And it's very interesting to you know, sort of explore this kind of transformation, not from the humanitarian profession, but from the viewpoint of movies or books or moral philosophy, etc. It gives you a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um,
1: it's quite unhealthy, in a way, in the humanitarian sector when you look at formal... Curricular or, or institutional reading lists—they tend to be very technical um, in nature, rather than more more humanist, I guess, in their approach.
0: Yeah, and then if I mention something else, I think history is absolutely necessary. History is very sobering, um, and again, it's also a lesson in uh, in uh, humility. I think probably the best philosophy book I've read uh, recently was The Shield of Achilles by Philip Bobbitt. It's a tough, it's a tough read. I mean, I, I sort of, um, I don't want to say that it was less busy when I was in Geneva, but I, <laughs> I did have more time to read when I was in Geneva. So I read that when I was in Geneva. Um, and it has a pretty, I mean, it's difficult to explain. It has a pretty cyclical view of history. It's actually very sobering. Um, and again, going back to the, that moment in which we lived of certainties in the 90s and then like uh, b- before the zero crisis. So when you learn to look at history in a cyclical way, you probably become more humble in terms of the things you can do and the things you cannot do. So I think I think referring to history, even if it's 2000 years ago, is always very educational.
1: Hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Was there anything that you had in mind but that we haven't touched on? Any uh, thoughts or, or perspective that you wanted to close on?
0: No, I think that's the main uh, that's the main point. Maybe the issue that's been occupying my mind uh, lately quite a lot is um, how maybe a lot of the certainties in the humanitarian world were destroyed uh, in Libya and then in Syria. Um, and I think that has made the profession quite vulnerable from trends outside of the sector. Because there's a lot of uh, trends in the humanitarian sector that we're taking directly from the private sector. So there's a lot of leadership training, for instance, now in the humanitarian sector. But I think we have to become uh, a bit more critical with that because sometimes we have the tendency now to sort of absorb the trends as they come, but we we'll probably have to be a bit more able to discern what's good and then what's, uh, what's, what's bad. There's a lot of trends these days on mental health, in particular in terms of self-care. And that's quite dangerous because, I mean, there's a very good article uh, in The Guardian a year ago about meditation and how all these trends actually can be used to evade organizational responsibility for mental health. It's to say, listen, it's your responsibility. You know, you have to meditate every morning and eat healthy and then all this. I think that's actually quite uh, dangerous. dangerous. I um, I think there's there's a very strong link between um, good, I'm not talking about leadership, I'm talking about management, good management, knowing how to delegate, for instance, doing it properly and mental. And I think there's a very strong relationship between staff rights and mental health. And it's not really the workshops on yoga that give you, I mean, it's a caricature, but this is a trend right now. It's having good salary conditions. Um, and then, for instance, in my office, um, these four years, I, I try to focus on that as much as, 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 as we could. I try to promote a staff association that was active and vocal. Um, and then when we saw that some of the units in the office, that there was... Um, there's one man, one manager also managing, for instance, 10 or 15 or 20 staff. The solution is managerial. The person was very well-intentioned, but the solution was managerial to so create sort of a middle management structure so that there would be more communication between management and staff. And that's actually the staff telling us, which tells a lot about, um, about uh, the maturity and also their leadership. So I think it's very good that we focus a lot on good leadership but um, I think the issues in terms of managerial structure, decentralization, ability to delegate, which they have an element of soft skills, but it can actually be technical solutions. And there's lots of issues on actually staff rights uh, in, in terms of salary, in terms of practical medical insurance, in having an RNR to have um, quite a good impact also on uh, on mental health. And those are organizational responsibilities, are not. Personal responsibilities. So I think that's also quite uh, quite sobering. I think the, the the current conversation on mental health is is extremely useful. It was high time that we did it. But I think we have to focus also uh, um, on on uh, on these things and then focus also because just to give an example, uh, it's not only focus about ourselves because it's focusing on our partners and then we work sometimes with subcontractors like, you know, cleaning companies or security companies. Um, and I think this is happening quite a lot in Lebanon. Uh, the, the fact that uh, there's a confluence between the humanitarian, the, the economic crisis in Lebanon, and then the pandemic, and the fact that maybe we have become a bit too observed on ourselves as a humanitarian community has made us forget other people, like local NGOs or subcontractors who can be extremely vulnerable because of the working conditions they have, Mental health problems. I think we have to be a bit more practical when we look at these kind of things.
1: You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at One onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.